You're listening to Call of the Herald, book one of the Dawning of Power trilogy, a podcast novel written and read by Brian Rathbone. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening. Chapter 19 Belief systems are fragile things. How will you react when your reality suddenly ceases to exist? Ian Geist, Sleepless One You ride with me, Vertok said, giving Katrin no choice but to follow him to his horse. They would all ride on horses with the other men, whose saddles contained a second set of passenger flaps that held soft leather stirrups. The flaps provided little cushion, but they had a large ridge around the back that would help keep them in place while they were riding at speed. Before Katrin could get her boots into the stirrups firmly, Vertuk issued a battle cry, and the horse leaped into a full gallop. Katrin grabbed at the leather straps that hung from the sides of the saddle and held on with white knuckles, struggling to get her boots in the stirrups. Once her boots were firmly planted, she settled into the rhythm of the horse's powerful stride. Vertuk's eyes showed his pleasure that the herald had such fine riding skills. The riders sent clouds of dust into the wind, and Katrin squinted to keep sand from her eyes. Vertuk reached into his saddlebag and produced a headgear for Katrin, this time one with eye slits. She felt a little unsteady as she rode, but it was much better than sand in her eyes. Cheslo and the others rode in tight formation with Vertuk, and Katrin saw her companions donning headgears as well. Like a flash flood, they rolled toward the valley entrance in a headlong rush, lest they become trapped. The mouth of the valley was narrow, and the horsemen funneled closer together, close enough for Katrin to touch the rider beside her and as they passed through the narrow opening, they smashed together, nearly unhorsing her. Clear of the valley, tribesmen surrounded their leaders in a tight, diamond-shaped formation. Vertuk directed them straight toward the line of Jean's soldiers approaching from the north. The wind whipped and visibility dropped to near zero. The Jean were obscured by a veil of dust and were barely visible along the horizon. Despite greater numbers, the Jean attack seemed ill-advised. They were still distant and spread thin, but Katrin supposed their hands had been forced when the Argast intercepted their prey. Had the Argast been less vigilant, she would have been trapped. She turned her head to see who was behind her, but she could see little through the headgear and the dust that roiled up behind them. As she gazed higher, she could still see the top of the towering fountain, and she was amazed to see a pair of eagles floating on the thermals in the mist surrounding it. They swooped and dived through the water, and Katrin felt a moment of vindication and joy. The Argast remained true to the straight path they had chosen, and the enemy forces seemed to be gauging their purpose. As the Jean formed into a more dense and organized force, Katrin shouted for Vertuk, telling him to take evasive action, but he continued on his direct course. 
looking at the dense formation of Argos surrounding her. She wondered if Vertuk planned to ride straight through the gathering Jean. The closer they came to the Jean, the more prepared the enemy appeared, looking ready to stand fast against the approaching onslaught. Many soldiers dismounted and held long pikes to protect against the charge. But by concentrating in one area, they committed themselves to holding that ground. Vertuk raised a reverberating cry, and riders charged in every direction, forcing the Jean to abandon the ground they held. Katrin held on tight as Vertuk turned his mount sharply and headed east. The Argast horses were winded, but so were those carrying the Jean. The Jean horses had not been desert-bred and were on unfamiliar turf. Katrin looked around desperately for her guardians, but the headgears and the dust made it nearly impossible to identify anyone. Vertuk's gambit provided a temporary advantage, but hordes of Jean reinforcements began to flood the desert, swarming around isolated pockets of the Argast. One of the tribal leaders rode in close, and Katrin heard Nat shouting and pointing northeast. To the cliffs! Must get Katrin to the cliffs! Vertuk nodded and angled them in the direction Nat indicated. No matter which direction they chose, they would have to break through the Jean at some point, and Vertuk veered for the largest gap in their lines. In the same instant, Nat cried out in warning. Katrin snapped her gaze to where he pointed, and Vertuk cursed when he spotted a formation of soldiers closing in from the north. These men and their horses wore protective gear, making them much better prepared for desert fighting. The horses showed a bit of lather, but did not appear as winded as the horse beneath Katrin. Vertuk shouted and turned east pushing their mounts to the limit. Katrin was humbled by the dedication and courage of the Argast horses, who gave all they had. Feeling such affection and gratitude for the mount that was so valiantly bearing her and Vertuk, she placed her hand on the horse's croup behind the saddle, and unaware her emotions, love, peace, and energy flowed from her hand into the horse. As she touched him, her hand grew hot, and a tingling pulsated in her palm. The horse seemed to respond to her gentle touch and was rejuvenated. It leaped ahead of the horses surrounding it. The approaching Jean formed into a tight wedge and closed at great speed, making Katrin wonder if this was where the fighting would truly begin. It was terrifying and she could not envision it. The tension in the air was palpable, and she could hear little above the muted thunder of hooves pounding the sand. No one spoke, shouted, or cried out. It was eerie and unnerving, and Katrin could feel the hair on her arms and neck stand on end. The approaching Jean were mostly armed with swords, but a few carried bows. The Argast were armed with wooden spears, and they looked puny beside the cold iron. Vertuk desperately sought to evade the menacing wedge, but it continued to grow closer. 
The low din was shattered when the Jean overtook them. Cries of man and horse ringing above the muted thunder, accompanied by metal striking hardened wood. Katrin ducked under a sword as it whistled by her head and was still off balance when a soldier slammed his mount into hers. She was nearly knocked from the saddle by the impact and leaned out perilously close to one side as Vertuk smashed the soldier across the face with the butt of his spear. As she straightened in the saddle, Katrin caught a glimpse of Cheslo and Benjen. She screamed as she saw them collide at full speed with the Jean soldier. She watched in horror as all three went down, and she was unable to distinguish anything in the chaos. The Jean were trying to divide the Argast to deal with them individually, and they were doing an alarmingly good job of it. Vertuk and Katrin were forced away from the others and found themselves surrounded by Jean. Riding behind a man whose name he did not know and whose dialect he did not seem to speak, Chase watched Benjen go down. He thought he saw Katrin nearby. A Jean soldier was bearing down on Benjen, and at the same time at least a dozen were going after Katrin. Time seemed to slow as Chase was torn by a decision that must be made in an instant. There was no time for debate or second thoughts. He yanked on the shoulder of the man in front of him, pointing and screaming, and by the mercy of the gods the tribal leader turned his horse toward where Benjen had fallen. Chase cursed and climbed to one side of the horse, putting his right leg in the left stirrup. He coiled his muscles like a snake about to strike. An instant before a Jean blade would take Benjen's life, Chase jumped. Osborne cried out as one of his boots slipped from the stirrup. Only Spenwar's grip kept him from tumbling to the sand. Riders came from all directions, and it was difficult to tell friend from foe. But when a horse materialized from the dust bearing two riders, he knew it was one of his friends. Strom roared as they passed, throwing what looked like a pear at an oncoming Jean horse. The fruit struck the horse in the forehead startling the animal while it was at a full gallop. The horse and its helpless rider veered sideways and crashed into another Jean soldier. Osborne would have cheered the victory, but more riders came, and he followed Strom's lead. He opened one of the pouches along the saddle and found soft cheeses wrapped in broad, supple leaves. Knowing they would have no need for food if they did not first escape, he took half of them and began throwing them at approaching Jean riders. Though he was aiming for the horse's eyes, he often missed, but one bundle of cheese struck a Jean soldier in the face and exploded on impact. The blinded soldier dropped his reins and tried to clear the cheese from his eyes, but the cheese clung to his skin and lashes, and sand began to collect on it, making matters worse. Unprepared, when his horse suddenly veered around a fallen rider, 
the soldier flew from the saddle and plowed face first into the sand. Osborne let out a brief cheer just before a Jean horse struck them broadside and at full speed. As the world tumbled around him, Osborne gave thanks for all that life had given him. Activity to Katrin's right caught her attention, and she turned to see what was happening. The Argost had adapted quickly and were using the Jean's ramming technique against them. She watched horrified as the Argast crashed recklessly into the Jean. One horse caught her attention as it bowled over an unsuspecting Jean soldier, its second passenger taking down the Jean with his staff. Nat howled, wide-eyed, like a man possessed as he searched for a new foe. Katrin recognized Ervil of the Sun Clan, who rode before Nat. Ervil attacked with a fury, driving his horse into the Jean, thrashing them with his spears, and yelling exultantly whenever Nat landed a blow. They cleared a hole in the Jean line just large enough for them to break free. Vertuk and Ervil urged their horses on, and somehow the marvelous beasts found their wind. They surged ahead of the pursuing Jean and thundered toward the rocky borderland where a sparse forest skirted the cliffs. Vertuk let Ervil and Nat lead since only Nat knew their destination. Katrin could see several Jean closing in from behind. She feared their swords, but the men armed with bows terrified her more. Her back exposed, she felt naked and vulnerable, and continued to watch for arrows, but the archers were out of bow range and had loosed none, which only increased her terror. Skilled archers would not waste arrows on bad shots, and these men seemed prepared to wait. As the land sloped upward, stunted trees grew thick, stinging with their branches, and loose rock shifted under hooves. The trail became as much an adversary as the Jean, and the nearly spent horses struggled with the terrain. A sharp crack sounded from behind followed by a sickening thud, and as Katrin spun around, she saw a horse go down, its leg shattered. The flailing animal tumbled down the rocks, taking two others and their riders with it. Ervil struggled to outrun the remaining Jean, following a windy path that was barely more than a game trail. Low-hanging branches assaulted them, and brambles clung, biting deep. Katrin counted four Jean remaining, and she shouted to Ervil, urging him on, but he was hard-pressed, and despite his best efforts, the Jean were making better time. All they could do was press on as relentlessly as they could. Ervil barked a warning, and Vertuk veered away from a hornet's nest so large it covered the tree that hosted it. Katrin watched as the Jean grew closer to the nest. Then, in one fluid motion, she drew her knives and launched them at the nest. Her old belt knife with the broken tip flew wide, striking only bark. But in the next instant, her Jean blade struck home, 
exploding the nest into a cloud of paper and enraged hornets. Moving like an angry specter with a shared life, the mass descended on the Jean with unmitigated fury. Cries of man and horse split the air, and Katrin watched, awed but horrified by what she had done. Two horses went down, and the rest panicked. Some of the hornets overtook Katrin and Vertuk, and their horses surged ahead with renewed energy born of pain. Vertuk had to duck under the many branches, and Katrin was nearly unhorsed by leaves that raked her face and a branch that struck her in the forehead. The Jean fell farther and farther behind, and Ervil took full advantage of the situation. He pushed his mount through brush and brambles, and the noble animal lowered its head and pressed on, ignoring his scrapes and many bleeding cuts. Katrin kept a watchful eye on the woods behind them, seeing soldiers moving between the trees, but they were still a good distance back and moving more slowly. The forest thinned and gave way to a rocky incline, beyond which loomed the bluffs, the absolute edge of Katrin's world. Sorely winded, the horses were clearly in no condition to carry them across such terrain. Vertuk and Ervil spoke quietly and, in a moment, seemed to agree on a difficult decision. First they dismounted, then they helped their passengers to the ground. Vertuk and Ervil then did what would have seemed unthinkable in other circumstances. They commanded their horses to go on without them, but it was entirely contrary to the animal's nature and they stood their ground confused and agitated. The men persisted, and Katrin watched in anguish as Vertuk chased his horse away with a flick of a switch. The bond shared by the Argast and their horses was like mated souls, and it grieved Katrin to witness the scene. The image of these animals going against their very natures, retreating through the trees, their ears pinned back and their tails tucked, was burned into her senses, and she knew she would never forget it. Nat took the lead and scrambled up the rocks to look over the edge. He scanned the water, pulled a piece of polished metal from his robe, and signaled wildly. Sounds of pursuit grew closer, and Nat searched the water desperately. A bright signal not far east of where they stood, was coming from small boats secluded under the shadow of the cliff. Elated, Nat rushed east along the cliffs. Katrin still feared the soldiers would catch them, and Vertuk and Ervil stayed as far from the edge as they could. Suddenly, soldiers emerged from the trees, and Katrin saw one of them knock an arrow. Nat ran to a large rock that jutted out over the water, and Katrin and Vertuk rushed to join him. When they looked down at the small boats below, the height terrified Katrin, and she turned to retreat. Before she could take a step, however, Ervil cried out and rushed toward the approaching soldiers. He held his ground against a man wielding a sword, but Katrin saw the archer draw and loose his arrow in one smooth motion. 
She knew where it would strike, even as the archer's fingertips slid from the bowstring. Tears filled her eyes as she turned back to the cliff. Vertuk stood at her side, looking grim and determined. As one, they prepared to meet their deaths. But as they turned to make their final stand, Nat spoke softly. I'm very sorry to have to do this, he said, and Katrin knew what was about to happen as she felt his hand on the small of her back. She screamed as he pushed her over the edge. Dust and the smell of blood choked Strom as he pulled himself from under the horse that had given its life to save his. Luck had been with him, and he was uninjured. The same could not be said for Maluk, who was now under his horse, dead. As Strom stood, his head spun, and the world around him was a blur. After a moment of shock, he recalled the danger and took a sword from the nearby body of a soldier. Before he could even test his swing, a shadowy rider materialized within a cloud of dust and bore down on him with speed. Stepping back and bracing himself, Strom prepared to take a desperate swing, but then he saw it was Chase. Leaning down from his saddle, Chase reached out and grabbed Strom as he passed, barely slowing. Strom grabbed on and leaped up in the saddle behind Chase, and he was glad to see that Chase had stolen a Jean horse. At least it had a bridle and reins. Where are the others? Strom shouted. I don't know. Let's go find them, Chase replied as he drove his mount to greater speed. Chapter 20 There is no greater act of faith than to put your life in the hands of a stranger. Guntar Berga, Soldier The wind buffeted Katrin about mercilessly as she fell after Nat pushed her off the cliff. The air was sucked from her lungs and she was unable to control her limbs. She flailed wildly to right herself then tucked herself into a ball, preparing to absorb the impact. The waves rushed toward her with impossible speed, and she struck the water feet first. The impact forced the last of the air from her lungs, and her momentum drove her far beneath the waves. Terrified, she fought to reach the distant surface. Hampered by her clothing, she did not think she would make it. Her lungs burned for air, and only willpower kept her from parting her lips to inhale water. Above her, light reflected off the surface, dancing, taunting her, just out of reach. Her body demanded breath, and she gulped, repulsed by the salty taste and burning in her throat. Her body went into spasm and thrashed with little effect. Something hard struck her, but she barely felt it. Darkness was settling on her as rough hands yanked her from the water. When the darkness faded, she found herself in the belly of a small boat. 
a man was beating on her chest and blowing into her lungs with his mouth. Her body convulsed, and he turned her onto her side so she could empty her lungs and stomach. The small boat tossed violently, compounding her disorientation. As she tried to right herself, the men in the boat continued to row vigorously. Her stomach betrayed her again, and she clung to the gunwale, feeling sea spray on her face. The wind was cold, and noticing her shivering, one of the men draped a blanket across her back. She wrapped herself tightly, but she still shivered violently, and her teeth chattered. As she regained control of herself, she saw there were four men huddled in the small craft, rowing as if their lives depended on it. Several other boats floated nearby, and they all struggled against the current. The men were oddly garbed and had darkly tanned skin. Katrin had never seen men adorn themselves with jewelry, but these wore rings on their fingers and some had earrings. She had seen tattoos, but none like the complex patterns that ran up one man's arms, looking like a live painting. None spoke, though, not even to one another, and Katrin huddled in silence, not trusting her voice to speak. Cold rock jutted from the water, looming over them, and Katrin feared the waves would batter them against the imposing cliffs. As she watched, the men turned the boat sideways to the bluffs and rowed into the shadows. As they entered the gloom, an opening materialized before them, previously hidden in the darkness. Cool, musty air barely stirred. As they rounded a bend, they were bathed in soft torchlight. The violence of the thrashing waters subsided completely. Their rowing was now confined to keeping the craft in the center of a narrow channel that flowed into a large cave. It was lined with jagged rock, and firelight danced on the water ahead. Around a bend floated a ship in a cavern just barely large enough to contain it. The ship didn't quite look right, and Katrin realized it was missing its mainmast. Above them, on a rock shelf, a fire burned and at least a dozen people milled about. But when they saw the boats return, they ran up the gangplank of the ship, tossed down the lines, and secured them to large iron rings on the boat's rails. The men above used a windlass and a series of large pulleys to haul the heavy boats up to the point where they were level with the deck. It was only then she realized there were three boats in addition to her own that must have been waiting for her and her companions below the cliffs. When each boat was empty of people, they handed it onto the deck and turned it on its side. It took a dozen men to lift the boat to the hooks where it normally hung, but they quickly secured it and dropped the lines down for the next boat. In relatively short order, all the men were aboard and the boats were stowed. Katrin found Nat and was amazed to see he still held his staff. It took her longer to locate Vertuk, but she eventually saw him huddled in a corner, his head cradled in his hands. Are you hurt? No he said, shaking his head slowly and slightly. I did not know there could be so much water. 
or that it could be so... He struggled for the word. Tall. She nodded her understanding, touched him on the shoulder, and walked back to the railing. The ship did not move as violently as the small boat had, but it still moved constantly, and Katrin found it disquieting. As she leaned on the railing, trying to move with the movement of the boat and compose herself, a young man presented himself. A skinny lad with bright red hair and freckles, he was the only sailor she had seen without a dark tan. Hello, miss. I'm Bryn. Captain wants to see you right away. I can take you to him if you'll just follow me. Katrin nodded and followed him to one of the doorways leading into the deckhouse. As she stepped through the hatch, she immediately felt confined and closed in. She bumped into the walls as she stumbled and had to catch herself to keep from falling. The ship's motions were subtle, but they wreaked havoc on her sense of balance. Bryn led her down the corridor to a door with no identifying marks. He tapped lightly, opened the door, and motioned for her to enter. The floor of the cabin was lower than the deck, and Katrin looked down as she stepped inside, a motion that proved to be a mistake. That concludes this episode of Call of the Herald. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening.